This week on Across the Peak, Rich and I are going to tell you how to make the perfect cup of coffee and the health reasons that might make you want to drink it. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the fuck up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak Rich what's going on buddy good morning sir how are you I'm all right man I I can't really complain dude well How's as things? you know I'm coming coming off of a week's vacation uh on the coast and uh Hurricane Michael came through and blew some stuff off the trees and that was all right other than that we had a wonderful time just very leisurely and here I am talking to you, buddy. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that, man. I've, uh, I guess, not too terrible a week. Uh, one of the dogs had to have surgery this week, but we, uh, we knew that was coming, and that was planned kind of in advance. We um, let's see, we drank uh, drank a little bit of our own beer last night, and uh, yeah, that, that's I guess that's kind of it for uh, for major events of the week. Oh, uh, this this podcast will be out two weeks after we record this, but I will tell the listener right now. That uh, one of my absolute favorite beers, I know I've talked about it on here before, uh, Oscar Blue's Death by Coconut is back on the market. They run that as a seasonal beer, and it is back for a limited time, so get it while you can. I just went out and bought uh, four cases of it uh, Thursday afternoon. Damn, Death by Coconut, back on the market. I'll have to check it out. Man, it is so incredibly good. It reminds me a lot of Gotta Get Up to Get Down, which you and I talk about a lot. I think we talked about maybe the last episode, but dude, I... As soon as I saw it, man, I, I'm, I'm like, I got to get it. Yeah. Have you heard from Wiseacre Brewing who makes uh, Got to Get Up to Get Down? Because I'm sure they've experienced the across the peak bump from our listeners. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have not yet. But uh, maybe we should get in touch with them. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I was having some, uh, I took some with me last week to Buford on vacation, man, because that's a, that's real good stuff. How, how did your beer turn out, man? Uh, good, man. Good. We uh, we made a vanilla porter, and it turned out absolutely phenomenal, man. We we really enjoyed that one. And we've got, man, we've got a bunch of stuff lined up that we want to do, but we had a couple of those mixed in with our Death by Coconuts last night. Nice. What are you drinking this morning? Man, this morning, I'm drinking something kind of neat. I am drinking a coffee from Germany, and... This is something that a, a close friend picked up for me when she was in Germany and uh, brought back for me. It's called, the coffee company is called Wild Cafe, uh, and it's all German spelling, which I just find awesome. And the particular blend is the Wilderer. And I sent you a photo of this. It's, uh, it's this German Wilderer uh, or, or hunter, basically a hunter with uh, you know, with some pine branches in his cap, uh, looking down the barrel of his uh, double barrel shotgun, about to take a shot on some game there. Oh yeah, that is a cool pick. That needs to be in the show notes, man. Yeah, I'll definitely make sure that's in the show notes. But uh, it's it's a fine cup of coffee, man. And I might have to get up in the middle of recording this one and make another. Well, Germany's not known for their, uh, you know, growing coffee. So where the hell's that coffee coming from? I know it's not grown on the banks of the Rhine, is it? No. Uh, one thing. Well, I I don't know exactly where they're getting their coffee from. We'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more. But it's uh, it's almost certainly a. Uh, uh, 
well, it is an Arabica bean, but probably the big benefit of that, is, as we'll get into later, is coffee is best within just a few days of having been roasted. So that's how ideally we would get our coffee if we were trying, you know, <laughs> we had the absolute high standards for coffee, is order the beans, roast them in your home just moments before you're going to brew that coffee. Uh, probably not feasible for most of us. So the next best would be import those beans to your local uh, roastery and they would roast those beans and you'd buy those beans shortly, very shortly after they're roasted. So that's probably what's going on. They're probably importing these from uh, from wherever in the uh, in the band of latitude where coffee actually grows and, and, and just roasting it locally. Yeah, that's something me and you should try, roast our own beans and see what, what we can come up with. What do you think? Man, actually, I love that idea. I've never even thought of that, and I, I don't know why that didn't occur to me, but, dude, I'm, I'm in, man. Let's, let's, roast some, let's roast some beans. Yeah, there's a, there's a lady that makes some here uh, about 45 minutes down the road, and um, she's gotten quite a following. Matter of fact, with my other show, The American Warrior Show, we reached out to her, and we were going to have her do um, – a signature blend, but she's got a roaster and stuff. Maybe we can chat with her. I, dude, but, I would love to. I'd love to know more uh, about roasting coffee. I've, I've never done it. I've, I know a little bit about kind of the general stuff about how it works. Do you have to have a specific tool to, to roast it? Can you roast it in your oven? What do you need? I, I'm with you. I don't think that it would be that hard. I mean, I have zero idea, but I mean, I, I think it's just raising it to a certain temperature and I mean, what else could there? What else there could be? But there, there's the other thing as we'll talk about. I'm sure in the show here in a minute. There's the, the different blends. You know, what percentage of arabica to robusta, or do you want to leave robusta even out of the deal? But it brings some qualities. But before we get into the show, man, I, my friend, I'm enjoying a <clears throat> from my Nespresso machine, Pete's Nerissimo, and it is absolutely bellissimo. Absolutely delicious, very dark espresso, and uh, it is one of my faves. Wow, man, that sounds that sounds good. Um, I, I don't think you quite have me to being an espresso junkie or devotee yet, but you're getting there, man. You're you're working on it. You're making it sound awful good. And and when I'm down there and have some, it is really good. Oh yeah, when uh, you know we had Warrior Camp last week and. Um, my partner, Mike Seeklander was here and Virgil was here and TC and we had a house full of dudes and they were really loving the espresso brother. If, if you, if you could have hung around another day or two, I think I could have, I think I could have got you. <laughs> maybe so. Maybe so. And I'll be honest when it comes to coffee, I, I enjoy good coffee. I definitely enjoy a, a really nice cup of coffee, but if it gets right down to it, man, I'll drink McDonald's coffee. I'll drink gas station coffee. I'll drink coffee from man as as long as it's black and wet, that's pretty much my my leading criteria there. Okay, where do we want to start something as big and wild and wonderful as, uh, his, uh, not even the history of coffee, what are we going to talk about? Making coffee, the history of coffee, what is this episode? Uh, man, I, I think we're, uh, I, I think this started out with the idea of, we talked about your uh, your great-grandfather, whoever, that would just throw a handful of coffee into a pot of boiling water and, and <laughs> oh, yeah. pretty much drink it right out of the pot, and that got me kind of thinking about what actually goes into making a good cup of coffee. And there's a lot of, maybe there's a lot of mystery about coffee or, or people are just in their coffee thing. I buy Maxwell House and I put three scoops in the coffee pot and that's all I really know. So I got to thinking about how to make a good cup of coffee and that led me down a little rabbit hole of, 
well, if I really wanted to make the absolute best coffee, what would I do and, and whatever. And started looking into the history of coffee a little bit and the health benefits of coffee and all this other stuff. So let's start out a little bit with a, with a brief history of, of coffee and just kind of give the listener a little bit of background on where this actually comes from. And obviously, we're not going to be able to hit everything or go super deep into this, but uh, I, I, I find this absolutely fascinating. And I'll be honest with you, man. When uh, when we were picking the book of the week this week, I didn't. I don't think I've read a really good book on coffee, but I need to fix that ASAP, man. Yeah, same here. For <clears throat> as much as a coffee lover as I am, or you are, it's amazing that neither one of us have really found that perfect coffee book. So, if listeners, if you've got one, send it in to Rich at acrossthepeak.com because I would love to to read it. Yeah, I was telling Kai, I've read probably. Half a dozen books on rum. I've read, you know, pro- probably a hundred or more books on religion and you know the various religions of the world. I've read, like, I'll get in these areas of interest and just really explore them, you know, with all the reading I can do on it until I either run out of stuff to read or run out of interest in the topic. But uh, coffee, man, I I don't know why I've never read a book about coffee. That it kind of boggles my mind now that I think about it. But anyhow. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the history of coffee, man. Lead it away. Well, uh, coffee cultivation was going on as early as the 15th century. Uh, that's about as far back as we know about this uh, mysterious substance. And man, I'll be honest, if you get into the first person that discovered coffee, there are a million and one different legends and lore and stories about this is the, you know, this goat herder that you know, found these, found these beans and threw them in the fire and then discovered they were, you know, they smelled delicious, all kinds of stories. The fact is no one really freaking knows who first discovered coffee or who the first peoples were that discovered coffee. But we do know it originated on the Arabian Peninsula. And there's kind of a, a specific band of latitude that coffee grows at, right? There is. And speaking of the Arabian Peninsula, I remember uh, before Desert Storm, we had two uh, two Kuwaiti policemen that fled their post as the tanks rolled through their country and ended up uh, working for the Americans, i.e. me and my friends, as translators. And I remember one night we were hanging out with these dudes, and they pulled this little what looked like... Um, a little dirty stick out of the desert and they ended up brewing it into a tea that we shared around the fire. So it doesn't surprise me that these people saw this weird little plant with these bright red cherry looking things on it and and figured out how to turn this into something drinkable because they're pretty good at that stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, this area is known as the bean belt and it's basically between the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. Everything inside that that area, although some parts of the world are, are much more well known for growing coffee than others. Um, Ethiopia, Brazil, some of the uh, Pacific islands are, are very popular for uh, growing coffee. So uh, it, we do know that this originated on the Arabian Peninsula. And if you've ever heard the term Arabica, that's why. Uh, that's where that comes from and where that term originated and where coffee itself originated. Uh, so by the 16th century, this stuff had, had made outroads a little bit to uh, Persia, Egypt, Syria, Turkey. Uh, by this point, people were drinking coffee in their homes, and it's you know pretty pretty well established that there were actually coffee houses at this time that people called schools of the wise uh, because um, you know probably because you had to have a little bit of money to. Uh, go to those and have a cup of coffee. And 
probably owing a little something to what coffee does to your brain, right? Well, yeah, and I'd heard that they were called schools of the wise because people would go in there, get jacked up on coffee, and discuss philosophy and literature and and all kinds of things of that nature. Have you heard that? Yeah, well, this is not... um, this is not unique to this place or time. Uh, we'll talk about the Penny Universities in England a little bit later. But yeah, this is a recurring theme that happens several times through uh, history. So, uh, co- but all around, all centering around coffee. Though, all right? centering around coffee. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And and we'll talk about why that is a little bit later on in the episode. And the listener probably anecdotally knows why, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. So, um, coffee became known kind of as at least outside of Arabia, as uh, the wine of Araby because it was so popularly enjoyed in Arabia. And travelers to the Near East started bringing this stuff back to Europe. And by the 17th century, it was pretty much popular across the continent. People were just loving this stuff. But as with anything, of course, uh, some people are resistant to change and called it a bitter invention of Satan. And uh, a lot of local clergy in Europe were condemning coffee as as something that uh, the devil had brought from uh, Arabia uh, to the point that uh, and think about this. What, Kai and I talked about this a little bit yesterday. If somebody came up with a uh, brought some new seed and everybody was going crazy for this stuff and getting all energetic when they drank it, and uh, I mean basically. I, I would say coffee pretty much becomes an addiction because there's not a lot of people that are casual coffee drinkers, not a lot of people that, uh, you know, drink coffee for, you know, all their lives and routinely take a few days off from drinking coffee or forget to drink coffee or that sort of thing. If there was a, if there was a new bean or root or leaf discovered that people were making a tea out of and drinking every single day and getting all energetic when they did it, I imagine people now, still today... Uh, even though you could find nothing medically wrong with it, it would probably still have a problem with it. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think it probably had two things going against it. Number one, it's coming from a predominantly Muslim country in a time when, you know, the, you've got uh, the Catholic Church has a death grip on Europe. And number two, it, you know, you can visibly see the effects that coffee has on the on the consumer. You know, it's making them fidgety and all this kind of stuff. So like, Oh, what the hell is going on here? And it was probably like the cocaine of the 16th century. I would imagine once it starts going across Europe, right? Well, especially when you consider, we're going to talk about this a little bit later on. When you consider that coffee replaced, um, basically replaced the more common breakfast drinks at the time, which were beer and wine. And if you were drinking coffee next to someone that's drinking a beer for breakfast, which I mean, I, I like. I'm not going to throw stones. Yeah. That person that's drinking coffee is is probably going to start their day more alert. They're going to start their day with more energy, with better cognitive function than, than that person right beside them that's drinking beer. And they're those two people are probably going to physically look a lot different, right? They do. And you know, one of the interesting things I, I think that we uh, in the 21st century will forget the reason he's drinking beer and not water, and the reason why coffee worked is. Beer, obviously, there's a fermentation process that kills any microbes that might be uh, harmful to the human digestive system. Coffee, by boiling that water, it does the same thing. So people back then, if you looked at what what, what the um, early colonists drank here in America, it's like 10 beers a day. And coffee provided that same uh, ability to purify whatever you're drinking. So I don't think there's a whole lot of shock there. We could do a whole episode on that water, you know. Yeah, yeah, we we probably should at some point, and uh, I definitely want to do an episode about beer, about 
you know, kind of same as this little history beer, uh, how beer's made and that, and how you can make beer in your house. Like I do, I consider myself the ultimate, uh, recycler. I refill my own beer bottles. Well done. So yeah, um, Coffee continued to spread across Europe. Uh, Pope Clement VIII uh, tried it himself and blessed off on it and, and gave it the approval of the Catholic Church. So it just went rampant in Europe. Um, like I mentioned, uh, coffee started replacing some other common drinks. And like you pointed out, and I hadn't even thought of this, Rich, like you pointed out, boiling coffee, boiling that water to, <laughs> to extract the sweet, sweet goodness out of those coffee beans, purified that water as well. I, th- that wasn't a thing that even occurred to me, so I, I'm glad you mentioned that. But uh, this became incredibly popular in England, which now we typically associate with tea, but, but coffee became wildly popular in England. And this is where the penny universities thing sprang up, because a cup of coffee was a penny, and you could go in there and sit and drink coffee and hear all these energetic conversations. And it was basically said you could get a university education from hanging around in the uh, coffee houses of the era. I love that, man. You can get a university education by getting a library card and being vigilant about educating yourself, but take that book to a, a coffee house and probably it, it, it'll it happen a little faster. But I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that too. That's a, that's a real neat uh, little side story there. So anyway, uh, by the mid 1600s, coffee was um, being consumed in the new world and coffee houses had sprang up in New Amsterdam, which, which is now, uh, now New York. They were pretty popular there, but Tea still had the stranglehold, man. We hit, we came from uh, from Britain, where tea was the drink of the day and remains kind of the drink of the day, despite the popularity of coffee. And we were we were a tea drinking society until uh, until 1773, when we decided no taxation without representation and uh, threw all the tea in the Boston Harbor. Yeah, man, and that uh, here we are today. You know, if, you, if that wasn't for that singular event, we probably would be having tea this morning instead of coffee. That's amazing when you consider that. And have you seen what have you seen what tea looked like back then in the 1700s? No, I haven't. Um, I went to this historical home, and this lady had this huge. It looked like a huge block of chocolate, <clears throat> and they would to secure it for the voyage. They would uh, press it into these squares bigger than a sheet of uh, paper. And it had all these designs on it. It was actually beautiful, about an inch thick. And she's like, can anybody tell me what this is? And I'm like, I have no idea. And it was tea. And you would break off because it had the little squares. And you would break off the squares as you needed it or cut them off and uh, brew it in your coffee. And it was uh, this little compact package. Man, that is neat. I had no idea. Um, This is silly, Rich. I kind of in my head, I'm like not having given this a ton of thought. Uh, when I was a, and I'm sure just sticking with kind of the narrative I built for myself in my head of the Boston Tea, Bar, tea Party, I imagine like hundreds of little tiny uh, Lipton tea bags floating in Boston Harbor there. Obviously, I know that's uh, not exactly how it was, but I guess I just assumed it was loose in barrels or something like that. Um, where did you see that? Um, there's a place here in Tennessee called the Ramsey House. It was built in the 1700s, and uh, it was one of the few houses out here in the frontier, and that they were showing like the things that would have been in their pantry, and there it was. And I'm like, "What the hell are these big bricks of dark stuff?" You know, and that's what it was. Uh, let's see if we can't find a, a picture of that and get that on the pot, on the show notes. I'd like to see that myself. It yeah, sounds I'll look it up. Real interesting to me. Yeah, sure, man. So anyhow, uh, after the Boston Tea Party, coffee became the drink of the Americas. 
Uh, in fact, to the point that Thomas Jefferson declared coffee the favorite drink of the civilized world. And uh, I'll stand behind old TJ on that one, man. I'd love me some coffee. <laughs> oh, likewise. So, uh, by the, so pretty much all this time, all the coffee in the world was pretty much coming from Arabia uh, until the Dutch managed to get a few seedlings to, uh, to India, and they had no luck growing them there. Uh, so they took their seedlings to the island of Java on what is now the Indonesian island chain and had just wild success with getting coffee to grow there. And, hell, that's why you still hear coffee called a cup of java to this day. Uh, they they uh, expanded cultivation to uh, Sumatra, which we still to this day see Sumatra blend coffee um, and several other islands in that chain. But that was the first uh, real exodus of coffee out of the Arabian Peninsula to basically the rest of the world. And then um, I find this little tidbit absolutely fascinating. In 1714, the mayor of Amsterdam gave a gift to King Louis XIV of France, and he gave him one young coffee plant, one coffee seedling. And he gave, uh, Louis XIV gave that coffee seedling to a naval officer, Gabriel de Clou, and they took it to the New World. They took it across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, they survived all sorts of bad weather, a saboteur that uh, tried to destroy that plant, and a pirate attack. And got that thing to Martinique. Once he planted that thing on Martin, Martinique, it absolutely thrived. Um, and it, that single plant is credited with the spread of 18 million coffee trees on that one island in the next 50 years. And as being the parent of all coffee trees throughout the Caribbean and South and Central America, I, I think that's absolutely fascinating, man. That is insane. I had no idea. <clears throat> Jeez. Uh, you know, I, I I don't know if anybody's ever tried that. It's much harder than it sounds. One time uh, we were in one of our favorite towns, and I'm like, I, w- I want to take a uh, sapling off of this magnolia tree and i want to bring it back to tennessee and plant it because we had lost one of our magnolias here on the farm and um we tried that man i, I nursed that little plant love that little thing and it just did not make it so for that to, and all i did was put it in our suv and drive home so but here this thing holy cow you didn't you didn't have any pirate attacks or anything no pirate attacks <laughs> no, nobody tried to sabotage it uh you know no bad weather i mean and and yet uh it didn't make it. I find that absolutely fascinating, man. That one little plant could change the the entire geography of coffee like that. Now some of the best coffee we have comes from Brazil, Colombia, those uh, those mountains in South America where coffee's grown now. I would say it's just as good as just about any coffee in the world, all because of that, that one gift from the mayor of Amsterdam to King Louis XIV of France. It's funny how little tiny things in history like that can have such massive changes. Yeah, it is, man. Um, there was a, a, this really doesn't have anything to do with coffee, but the, I saw a plant like this where it ended up in the Royal Botanical Garden as well. And that's what made me think of it. This guy was sailing around the coast of Africa. He sees this beautiful tree up on a hill. He, he pull, has the guy pull the boat over. He's a naturalist. He gets the tree. They carry it back to the world. You know, they go around the world, wherever they're going, they come back to the Royal Botanical Garden and they, planet there and then the naturalist sets off again in search for another plant because he knows 
this is the male plant and in order for it it has to have a female in order to breed and produce another plant and to this day they have never found another one of those trees it's actually a tree so the point was you know this is the loneliest tree in the world this single bachelor who's been living in the royal botanical garden for 150 years you know yeah all right so where do we go now i'm looking up the longest loneliest tree in the world right now uh, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll check that out a little bit later. So I think we should talk about the health benefits of drinking coffee because, you know, as with anything, I think there's, I think in society generally, uh, there's maybe a little bit of, of looking down on people that drink too much coffee, uh, like it's a bad thing. And I am very fond of the expression that everything in moderation, including moderation, but, uh, what, I have found in all my research on this, there's really no upper limit to the amount of coffee you should be drinking, uh, despite some of the, you know, maybe anecdotal claims that coffee might be bad for you or bad for your heart or or something like that, within some within some limits. So one thing that coffee can definitely harm is a good night's sleep. So you want to pay attention to when you're consuming this coffee. You want to curtail that well before you're laying down to get your eight hours of sleep. And dude, that sleep episode, it seems like we always find a way to relate back to that in just about every episode we do in one way or the other, doesn't it? Well, consider the fact that you're going to spend one third of your entire life sleeping. I mean, if you, if you live to be, you know, just if you die early at 60, 20 years would have been spent laying on your back asleep. So yeah, it's something very important and it affects so much. So I don't think we can say enough in some way. Yeah. So if you guys haven't listened to episode seven on getting a good night's sleep, that that's still one of my favorite episodes too, despite the fact that we mention it in just about every single other show. But yeah, that's that's a pretty astounding number, man. There's nothing you're going to spend as much time doing as sleeping. So uh, aside from that, one little downside, that one little foible of coffee is the caffeine will uh, inhibit your effective sleep. There's pretty much not a lot of downsides to it, is there? No, and I tell you what, there's a way to mitigate that. Like you know you. Find out what works best for you and your body. And uh, for me, you know, I don't drink caffeine after 2.30 p.m. That means tea. I, I normally will drink no more than one soda a week. I just I think it's poison, but that's my personal opinion. But when it comes to coffee, you know, I'll normally have one around 2 o'clock and I'm done for the day. I'll have one more espresso just to kind of push me through the rest of my day and, and that's it. Because the there are so many of the short-term benefits which you're talking about, you know, energy and focus and improvement of the mood and the way my mind, you know, the cognitive abilities that it's going to improve really help me. <clears throat> but I don't want to be laying awake, tossing and turning, trying to go to bed at 930 either. Yeah, same, man, same. I, you're absolutely right on that. For me, the cutoff is noon. I don't drink any caffeine after noon. I don't, uh, I don't drink uh, – well, sorry to say I don't drink soda. If we, if we go to uh, – you know, a, a fast food place or something for lunch, I'll, I'll probably have a soda. But uh, outside of that, I, yeah, it's maybe, maybe one a week, but I don't drink any caffeine after noon. That's, that's just my, uh, my general rule and it serves me pretty well. But yeah, but back to these short term benefits you mentioned, uh, coffee improves your energy and focus. Um, and if you're a coffee drinker, just try not having some coffee and, uh, and see how you feel. Uh, if you're not a coffee drinker, drink a couple cups of coffee and see if you have some improved energy and focus. It can also, like kind of as a 
physiological result of what's going on in your body. It can also improve your mood. Yeah, I anecdotally know that there's an improvement in the mood, but is there any science to back that up or that you're aware of? Uh, yeah, there is. And I I, uh, I didn't put it in the notes, but uh, yeah, yeah. An- anecdotally for me, um, if I don't have coffee, I'm going to be in a very bad mood. But um, yeah, there there is some there is some actual science, some actual phys- physiological changes that are happening in the body that tend to make coffee uh, tend to make you have a little upswing in mood. And obviously, this isn't a panacea. It's not the end all be all of being in a good mood. Um, and you know, probably like a lot of drugs, it it can tend to amplify what you're feeling. But generally, I think that trends toward. Uh, better, improved, uh, uh, more positive uh, moods. Uh, It can also, I read this stat or read this headline that coffee can make you smarter, and that seemed to be a pretty bold statement to me. So I dug into that study a little bit. And what it actually does is it stimulates, or it, it acts very similarly on the brain to things like dopamine and uh, epinephrine. Am I, maybe I'm mixing up my brain chemicals here, but it basically improves the firing of your neurons. So, it, uh, and it helps uh, connect neurons that maybe aren't necessarily always well connected. So, uh, it's uh, associated with creativity, uh, faster responses to things, the ability to make connections faster, and that sort of thing, uh, which I I would not disagree with at all. And uh, coffee can actually improve your physical performance as well. That is crazy, man. Um, yeah, the, the whole, I was reading something about neurons in the human body, and it was it said that uh, some of the neurons, individual cells that are uh, neurons, can uh, in a giraffe can uh, travel the entire length of the giraffe's neck. I'm like, unbelievable. So yeah, they're they're of vital freaking importance. Uh, to your intellect, and that's amazing that coffee can have something to, to do with that. That's pretty cool. So the long-term benefits, man. So that's short-term stuff. What what long-term, what's it going to do for us? Okay, uh, so this is pretty solid, and this is based on 15 separate studies. Coffee drinkers are far less likely to have type 2 diabetes, which just, man, just has such massive health benefit in and of itself. Uh, if you have type 2 diabetes, you're at much greater risk for all these other uh, potential chronic diseases. So that in and of itself is a massive, massive benefit. Uh, the next thing I would say, and this, uh, the, the doctor I saw quoted on this said, uh, this was under the cancer category. He said, this is a, maybe a little bit more contested and the information, the data is not quite as solid, uh, on prevention of cancer generally. But the one thing that he did concede is that coffee may very well protect your liver because people that are heavy coffee consumers, uh, heavy coffee consumption is closely associated with a greatly lowered risk of liver cirrhosis and liver cancer. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I've read some of those studies as well. That, and, and that, and again, I've known friends that have had to go in for treatment, and when they check their uh, levels, and they're like, "Man, your liver is fine. It should be wrecked after drinking four bottles of wine a day." And uh, the only thing that, well, I also drink a pot and a half of coffee in the morning, so maybe that's what saved their lives. Yeah, possibly so. And one thing to point out, this is coffee, right? This is coffee beans ground up with water. This isn't Monster. This isn't Red Bull. Uh, it, it's, it's, not the, uh, it's not the caffeine in the coffee that's doing all of this. You can't just put the caffeine in something else and say it's the same thing as coffee. Um, this is uh, the totality of whatever's in that bean, all the antioxidants and 
there's there's a lot of important uh, dietary vitamins in a coffee bean as well. Yeah, and are we going to talk about the antioxidants at some point? Because I think that's huge. Yeah, we will definitely uh, we will definitely hit on that. Well, I, we can hit on it right now. Coffee is the single biggest source of anti- antioxidants in the Western diet, and possibly, believe it or not, the other one. <laughs> Uh, the next biggest source would be uh, beer and wine would be the next biggest sources of antioxidants in the Western diet. Now, the Western diet is notorious for being insanely low in antioxidants because we don't eat a lot of fresh food. The Western diet is mostly composed of processed food and stuff that's already packaged and uh, basically all made out of corn and soy and uh, pretty much those two Plants with very little antioxidants in it. So and and the, oh the, sorry. No, I was just go going to say antioxidants, man. If I as I understand it, your body during its metabolic processes will produce these things called free radicals that can lead to cancer and heart disease and some other really nasty stuff. And the antioxidants that we're talking that Justin's talking about uh, are the things that go around and sweep up the free radicals and get them out of your body before they lead to uh, some of these nasty effects. So it's it's really important if you're one of those people, probably like yours truly, that does not eat enough green leafy vegetables and all that other kind of stuff, you may want to take a look at this because like you said, Justin, this is one of those things, this study, there's really no upper limit. I mean, four, five, six cups of coffee a day and and the trend graph, if I'm if I remember correctly, just continues to go up as far as the health benefit. Yeah, there's really nothing bad. This is like like we said, nothing bad it's gonna do for you with a caveat. If you're putting, uh, you know, four tablespoons of sugar and a uh, half a gallon of heavy cream in your coffee every day, right. you're, you're getting all that fat. You're getting all that sugar. That's probably not great. You know, I think a little cream and sugar is fine, but just be aware of, of the total amount of cream and sugar that you're consuming uh, alongside your coffee. Yeah, right on, man. So uh, coffee is also correlated with a, a reduced risk of Alzheimer's and dementia, and you know why that is, I don't know, and and I think that's probably one of the one of the assertions of coffee's health benefits that's the least verified and validated, and you know, quote unquote, proven. But hey, man, I, like there's all these other benefits. I like I'm pretty much sold on coffee, and. Hell, I, I pretty much like it anyway, as long as it's not just terribly bad for me. I'm going to continue to drink it. But if you don't drink coffee, you might think about some of these benefits and, and maybe consider it. Well, if you consider the fact that what we were talking about earlier, what it does to your neurons and your axions and all this stuff in your in your brain, then I, I'm not really shocked that there's some sort of uh, reduced risk of Alzheimer's and dementia. You know what I'm saying? If it's, if it's having this effect on your brain... And you're a coffee consumer for decades, then I would imagine when you get become an older coffee consumer that you're going to be able to reap those rewards. But again, I haven't read any of the studies that just seems that way to me. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I I, I agree, man. Um, all right, so let's. Uh, we've talked about the history of coffee. We've talked about how to make a great cup. Of, or no, we haven't. Uh, we've talked about the health benefits of coffee consumption. Let's talk about how to actually make a great cup of coffee and. We're kind of going to throw some principles here at you, regardless of what exact tool you use, whether it's a drip coffee pot or a press or a pour over or whatever. These principles should apply to just about everything. And I'm going to say, number one, first and foremost among those, like most things with food or drink or beverage that we put into our bodies, is use the highest quality ingredients you possibly can. Use the highest quality 
coffee beans that you possibly can. And like I said earlier in the episode, fresher is better. Coffee is typically at its best within just a few days of being roasted. So that's that's one thing that kind of gets me with uh, you know buying the big can of Maxwell House. I will do it. I'm not I'm not above it. I'll, I'll be honest with you, but. That coffee was roasted months ago. It was ground up months ago, and it was thrown in that can months ago, and it sat on the grocery store shelf for who knows how long. And one thing that disappoints me to no end is those cans aren't even metal anymore. You don't need a can opener to open those things anymore. Now they're just plastic uh, plastic cans. I used to love those metal cans, but that coffee is, is really, really old. So if you want to up your coffee game right away, you should start to look at some fresher coffee beans. Agreed, man. Uh, yeah, totally. Now, for me, as an espresso guy, especially my new Nespresso machine, that's hasn't been a concern. But for those out there that are still using some of the drip methods and other things that we're going to talk about here in a little bit, this is definitely solid advice. Yeah, and that is, so fresh is a big deal. I'd say the next thing is the actual quality of the bean itself. And generally, there's there's two types of beans that you'll see. There's Arabica beans and Robusta, Robusta coffee beans. And all those Arabica beans descend directly from the coffee beans that came out of the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, Robusta is a slightly different strain of coffee. And generally, uh, most coffee snobs are going to tell you that Robusta is pretty much just used for filler. It doesn't have the richness and the flavor that Arabica beans have. And I would tend to agree with that. Pretty much everything I buy is 100% Arabica. Do you... Do you diverge from that at all rich well the because i saw that in the show notes and i'm like man here justin is he's a coffee snob he's he's shitting all over <laughs> robusta but there must be something to robusta and there's a couple of different things that that i've read that makes robusta uh why we still even have the damn thing and for, for number one it is twice the amount of caffeine but because it has more caffeine they think that this leads to a bitter flavor and some people will say if you drink 100% Robusta, you know, it has a, almost a rubbery taste. But Robusta, um, as I've read, it, especially if you're into espresso, if you put a little bit of Robusta in there, it'll lead to a, a nicer crema. That's that foamy stuff on top of the coffee. Uh, it's, it's more resilient. You can have more coffee per hectare acre if you if you plant the Robusta. Another thing that's interesting, this is this was really the coolest thing that I saw in doing a little research about Robusta. They are they have to be pollinated with a plant with a different genetic composition, whereas Arabica is self pollinating. And I thought that was weird. Two plants of the, relatively the same species, but one has to be pollinated and one doesn't. So I thought that was pretty weird. Yeah. Uh- you know, back to back to uh, being able to produce more robusta on an acre or a hectare. Um, robusta being basically easier to produce. Generally, I think for most of your most of your coffee, it's typically used in cheaper coffee as f- basically as just filler beans because it is just so much cheaper. But I didn't realize the uh, the uses for robusta in things like espresso, where it produces more crema and. I, I think you pointed out that's the foam on the top of a of an espresso. I, I, I wasn't aware of that at all, man. Yeah, but I, I agree with you. Uh, robusta, you want to limit the amount that's in there. I don't think anybody anywhere is suggesting that you want a 100% robusta bean in your coffee, but I think maybe a little bit, even if it's just nothing more than filler, uh, probably be enough to get you a nice head on your coffee. Yeah, but uh, but dude, coffee is it can be just as nuanced as wine. It can be just as 
flavor tinted with all these different flavor profiles and just as complex and interesting. And I, I'm not a wine drinker. I'm, I'm definitely not a wine sl- snob. I'll have a glass here and there, but that's, that's not really my thing. But man, I, I do really enjoy sampling different coffees. I, I've got my standbys that, that I use, but I do like seeing these different little interesting flavor notes in various types of coffee. And when I travel, I, that's one thing I like to do. I like to drink beer locally. And I also, if I can, like to find a local coffee shop that's roasting their own beans because you, you find some real interesting stuff with that, man. Uh, let's talk about coffee labeling and some of the additional labels that you'll find on a bag of coffee, things like organic, bird-friendly, uh, stuff like that. Do you Is there anything you look for specifically in that, Rich? No, and I'd never even thought about it until you were sharing some of this knowledge with me, and I'm kind of fascinated by it, and I'm definitely going to be on the lookout for it. Tell us a little bit about it. So uh, probably the most, well, probably the most familiar ones to our listeners is organic, and, and there's all types of stuff out there that's labeled organic. Basically, that just means it is that farm is certified by one of the certifying organizations that can certify a product as organic. And uh, organic is one of the terms that actually has some legal teeth. There is actually some criteria you have to meet. You have to have a certifying organization come out and inspect your operation every so often to actually get that USDA organic label on your product. So uh, that actually means a little something. Um, Bird-friendly, Sometimes you'll see bird-friendly coffee. This is an, a nonprofit, I believe, run by the Smithsonian that certifies coffee farms as protecting wildlife. And there's a couple of there's a couple of benefits to this. So they can't clear-cut the forest and just put a big coffee plantation in. They have to leave some of the original canopy there, and that gives migratory birds and you know just the all the uh, fauna in a, in the rainforest a place to actually continue to live. So it's not just clear cut and all the wildlife's driven off. Uh, That's kind of the meaning behind that. But it has this ancillary benefit of the coffee being grown in the shade because some of the canopies left, you typically have a shade grown bean, which is considered a superior bean. That's the way coffee plants traditionally grew in the shade. Uh, So you get that protection as well. Sometimes you will see the claim shade grown on a bag of coffee. And if you see that by itself, lacking bird-friendly or organic or any of that stuff. If you see shade-grown, that's that's bullshit, man. There's no standard whatsoever for that. There's no uh, certification process. No one verifies that the farm's actually doing anything. There's not even a very strict standard about what shade-grown actually means, so that one's kind of BS. Um, another popular one that I see all the time is the Rainforest Alliance certification. Have you ever seen this one? No, like I was saying, I'm I'm sad to say that I have not. I'm sure they've been on every bag I've consumed, but I just haven't known to look for this stuff. I think this Rainforest Alliance uh, certification stamp has a little uh, like frog in it, and and this applies to. Uh, I think this one applies to a number of products, but like uh, cocoa and and some other things that uh, are grown in similar areas as coffee. This one actually has pretty decent standards, but I don't put a lot of stock in this one, and here's why. Only 30% of the beans in that bag have to meet the standard for them to get certified off on. So, I like, where's the other 70% of that coffee coming from? You, you don't really know unless it says 100% Rainforest Alliance certified. Uh, and then finally, the last one, and I'll be honest, this is probably the most important one for me, uh, above organic, above bird-friendly, above whatever, and that's fair trade certified. And basically that ensures two things. That ensures that the labor conditions 
are decent for the farmers that actually grow and harvest the coffee. This is incredibly demanding labor, and coffee is still, to this day, behind oil, one of the most heavily traded commodities in the world. So you can imagine anything that's that popular. There's massive uh, undercutting and trying to get the overhead as low as possible. So usually it's the farmers that kind of get screwed on this deal. Basically, fair trade, you pay a little bit more for your bag of coffee. It basically guarantees that the workers work under good conditions and they're paid a, a fair wage uh, relative to, to where they live and the work they do. And that's, I'll be honest, that's really the only one I give a crap about. And there's a fair trade uh, uh, fair trade organization. I don't remember the name of the organization exactly, but they have a little logo that'll be on the bag if that actually meets that standard. And uh, if you care about that, that's what you should look for. I think that's cool, man. Uh, I know a guy here in Tennessee, I've known him for years, really good guy. And he's from Honduras. And I said, you know, why'd you leave Honduras? He said, well, my father had a still owns a coffee bean plantation down there. And I'm like, well, you didn't want to stick around and inherit. He's like, Lord, no, it's, it's hard work, man. And, and, uh, it's extremely brutal conditions. And I wanted to get the hell out of there as soon as I could. So he ran off to America. So, yeah. So that goes to what you're saying, man, fair trade certified. I'll be looking for that. And yeah. And I, that's the thing. I don't have a problem uh, paying a little bit of money for it and making sure the people that produce that are, 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 are doing what I can. I'm not making sure, but I'm, you know, it, it really, it's very little inconvenience on me. It's just a few more cents for a bag of coffee or whatever. But uh, this is an elective thing. This is, this is a, a pleasure drink that I'm consuming. Uh, I, I don't have to drink it. So I hate to, uh, I hate to, to drink that at the expense of the people that are actually doing the very hard work of harvesting this stuff. So use high quality beans. That, that's what kind of what all those labels mean. Um, you know, choose your own adventure with that stuff. I would say the next thing is once you've gotten your beans, and this is probably the single most important thing, regardless of whether you're, what kind of coffee you're buying, protect that stuff from oxidation. Um, oxidation is the enemy of good taste in coffee. It's basically the oxygen in the air interacting with certain volatile compounds inside that coffee bean that causes a chemical change to take place that basically results in, in bad taste, bitterness, that sort of thing. So first and foremost, the best way you can prevent this is to buy whole beans. There's far less surface on a whole coffee bean than there is on a whole coffee bean that's been ground down into a bunch of tiny particles. So first and foremost, buy whole beans and grind them yourself. Do you? I know you use your espresso machine, but do you, do you make uh, just regular. I know you also have that bun coffee pot. I don't know how often you use that, but do you buy just regular beans? We do. And um, one of the things that we've got one of those little electric whirly grinders, and we've always used that. I would love to get one of those conical burr grinders, but they're a, a lot more expensive. And and uh, to be honest with you, I'm I don't know that it, the taste justifies the expense. What what have you? What has been your experience? Well, I don't. I, my conical burr grinder was only about thirty dollars, man. I, I don't know. Uh, That's it. Yeah, it's a ceramic conical burr grinder, and uh, but here's the thing: it's non-electric. You got to do it by hand, which I actually love doing. I love the visceral feel of of grinding that stuff with my own two hands, uh, filling those beans. Basically, just get crushed in that. Uh, it's called a conical burr grinder because the actual grinder itself is cone shaped and it fits into a cone shaped. I don't know, uh, uh, corresponding cone-shaped hole. And you adjust the grind by lifting that thing up and, and basically increasing the gap at the bottom of that that coffee can fall out of. It basically has to be crushed to the point 
that it can fall out the bottom of that and into your container. But, uh, but yeah, conical burr grinders they say are are best because they get a very consistent uh, particle size. But I, between you and me, I think the electric grinders do just fine, especially if you shake that thing a little bit, and uh, so all the big pieces don't rise to the top and the pieces on the bottom just get beat to death. But uh, the finer you grind the stuff, the stronger the brew is going to be, again, with that surface area thing. The, the smaller those particles are, the more surface area there is for the water to address. But um, ideally, you'd, you'd grind the stuff just immediately before brewing it, uh, per cup, per pot, whatever you're doing, to avoid that oxidation. A um, couple other points on this. Protecting the stuff from air and light. That's why if you buy a decent bag of coffee, it's going to have that little valve in front of it so you can squeeze the air out of the bag to prevent oxidation. The shorter amount of time you can keep that bag open, you basically want to open it, scoop out the beans you need, and close it right back up um, will help it. And storing it in some sort of light-proof container, those big bins at the grocery stores that are clear that you can see the beans, I would never buy coffee out of those because, one, probably a huge amount of airspace at the top. Two, that's probably not an airtight container. And three, not only is air in there, but so is light. And all those things are bad for the taste of coffee. So st- storing at room temperature, um, tell me about that because I've, I've heard, maybe it's a wise tale that you, you put the stuff in the freezer, you put it in the refrigerator. So is all that nonsense or is there anything to that? No, they say that's, they say that's pretty much nonsense. And this, but you got to remember, this is all based on the idea of buying your coffee no more than seven to, seven to ten days ahead of time. I and most experts agree. I looked at several different opinions on this uh, because I had heard the same thing, and I I have gone through big phases buying you know buy two or three bags of coffee at the time and throw them all in the freezer, take them out as I need them. But uh, experts pretty much seem to agree that uh, that you should store your coffee at room temperature in an airtight container in a, in a dark place. Right on. So, um, next thing, use good water. Uh, this should probably come as no surprise to anything. If anything you're making with water, if it has overly heavy chlorine flavors or fluoride or whatever other flavors your local municipal water might have, that's going to carry directly through to that cup of coffee. So you want to avoid that stuff. If you have exceptionally bad water, you might consider buying bottled water for your coffee. I've lived in one place in the country where I actually did that because the water was just so terrible. It had such a heavy chlorine taste. There was there was nothing you could do to get that chlorine out of the water or, or that flavor out of the water. So uh, I have bought bottled water to make coffee. Now, one important thing here. You don't want to use softened water or distilled water because the minerals that are in your water are good for the end result uh, of your cup of coffee. Generally, it's <laughs> um, I, I found this in several places. People tend to agree that distilled water makes a terrible cup of coffee. Yeah, and I think I've mentioned this before. You know, I, uh, my lovely bride will get me uh, limestone water from Kentucky, and we'll use that for um, mixers for bourbon and stuff like that. And I've used it. You know, of course, it has limestone and other minerals in it and i find that it makes a pretty damn good cup of coffee as well i'll tell you what man i'm going to order uh a bottle of that limestone water i i'll try it in my bourbon and i will try it uh, for a cup of coffee and i'll report back you know because we were um when we were at a distillery uh in the uk well in scotland last year and this guy um 
the dis, the ma, the master distiller was saying, um, oh yeah, you put a little bit of water, and he was talking about that, and I said, well, what kind of water? And he looked at me funny, as well, just any water. I said, well, I, you sure about just any water? And he's like, well, yeah. And I'm like, well, in the states, that means you're going to get. It smells like a swimming pool, and he just looked at me funny. I'm like, oh, yeah, man, it's loaded. And his water, when he thinks water, it's trickling from a lock up in the mountains, and it comes down into town, and that's what they use to distill with, and that's what they drink. And I'm like, no, man, not all water is created equal, so I'm so glad that we're having this discussion because that definitely pertains to coffee as well because most of coffee is just water. Yeah, and I have a friend that you have— I believe had the pleasure of talking to Mr. Mike Wood, who is not a coffee drinker at all. And he refers to coffee as warm bean water, which I, I think is hilarious when you really stop and think about it. Yeah. Coffee is nothing more than water that has leached out some compounds that are in these ground up beans. That's all it is, brother. And speaking of which, let's sidetrack a little bit here. Um, you Do you take uh, cream and sugar in your coffee? I, I take cream, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was just... Um, you had mentioned something to me about that, about it, imp- like changing the mouthfeel of the coffee, changing the experience of it. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the, the cream t- cuts the acidity a little bit, and it also adds that velvety texture. I'm I'm really into textures with foods. That's why a lot of these uh, very fibrous uh, plants, I, I really don't like them. The, the mouthfeel for me just freaks me out. So for whatever reason, uh, to add that to the coffee makes it a much more enjoyable experience. And maybe that's why I like the espresso because it's got the crema. You throw in some heavy whipping cream with it and it, oh my God, it gives a, cuts the acidity and uh, improves the mouthfeel. So for that alone, I love it. Yeah. I, I, I take my, uh, I take my coffee black. I don't tend to put I don't tend to really put anything in it with the exception of sometimes uh, some spices. And actually, fairly frequently, I'll do some spices, uh, some cloves occasionally, some, and, and these get a little out there. These create some really interesting flavors. Uh, some cloves, some cinnamon maybe, some nutmeg sometimes. And I really like doing that with a cup of coffee because the things that we view as herbs and spices typically have extremely concentrated flavors. And with those extreme concentration of flavors, we typically have extremely high concentrations of antioxidants or micronutrients that you don't tend to get in a lot of other places. So uh, basically putting a little cinnamon in my coffee is my way to feel good about I'm, I'm getting my extra vitamins uh, for this day. Yeah, my wife, lo- she she loves cinnamon in her coffee, and I know a lot of people that do that. Not a big cinnamon fan, man, but uh, I might try the nutmeg or some of the other, because I, I, I like the idea of of finding another way to get some of those micronutrients that otherwise you may not get as part of a Western diet. So I'm going to give it a shot. And using spices is an awesome way to do this. I think we talked about this once before, but that is one of the big points that the author of How Not to Die hits over and over again. If you want to improve your longevity, and you know this isn't just about improving the length of your life, it's also about not being on medications for the last 30 years of your life. Uh, it's eat vegetables, and and one thing that you can add into that that has a huge benefit is eat spices, uh, the widest variety of spices that you can handle and find, uh, because those things just contain really really intense concentrations of antioxidants and some of these other compounds that 
uh, I'm not necessarily conversant on, but I, I found that real interesting, and I've been doing it since I read that book. We should do an episode on spices because the history of that stuff is um, unbelievable, let alone just the health benefits. I mean, we could talk about all kinds of stuff relative to, to spices and and how people, you know, it it's used to be worth its weight in gold, some of these spices, and how we got to where we are today, and that, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, put together show notes for it. I am all about it, brother. Sweet. Let's do it. All right. So so anyway, we just went on a big old sidetrack, but still, still applicable. Um, all right. So here's what we talked about so far. We talked about buying the highest quality beans you can find, those labeling things that are on there, maybe help you guide your decision, protecting those beans from oxidation. Uh, selecting our water and using a good source of water for this. And then uh, the next thing I would say is don't get your water too hot. And I'd say it's probably one of the most common mistakes that people make. Um, unless you're using a drip coffee pot, most of your drip coffee pots will control for this and keep it in, a, in an acceptable range. But generally they say 200 degrees is about the maximum you want to go. And I would even go a little more conservative than that. Although I don't measure the temperature of my water, about 185 degrees is my sweet spot on that. Did you ever, you know, water boils at 212 degrees. Did you ever hear about how uh, McDonald's, what led to that woman getting her, or that grandmother, I should say, getting her crotch burn, uh, third degree burns, was they would up the temperature to boiling and beyond because when they do that, it unlocks more of the aroma and it would fill the restaurant with the smell and make people buy more coffee. And that, that they that was a conscious effort to overheat the coffee to get the smell out more, and that was one of the things that was used against them at the law at the um, where she won that multi million dollar lawsuit. Did you know that? I was not aware of that at all, man. Yeah, I wasn't either. That's a there's some really good documentaries out there about that incident, and uh, when you see how damaged that poor woman was by that damn boiling pot of coffee. It, it will blow your mind. And the fact that they did it, not for the taste, but just so to sell more coffee was kind of, ew. Actually, yeah, actually it hurts the taste because uh, the hotter that water is, the more tannins are leached out of those beans and those tannins are bitter and that's what causes bitterness in that coffee. But speaking of this, I, I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of people talk shit about that case and say, oh, well, you ordered coffee, you knew it was going to be hot. Like how... Um, but yeah, if you look at the photos of how burned that woman was, it is absolutely horrendous. And... Also, the party in that that I have zero sympathy for whatsoever is McDonald's. We watched a movie called The Founder the other night. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. Great movie. Man, that was a fantastic movie. And I think they did I, – I, I've read quite a bit about the fast food industry and the food industry. And uh, um, Ray Kroc was an absolute incredible businessman, man. No, no question about it. But a lot of the what he was able to accomplish was through – I would say kind of dirty dealing, man. Oh, yeah. He he screwed those brothers over. And I won't give anything away. You definitely need to check that that movie out because he did. He bent them over big time. Well, yeah. I, I, I'm glad you said something because I would have just spoiled the whole uh, movie. And it's not just the history. It, I'm not spoiling the movie. That's actually the history. Uh, that That's, uh, you know, I, I'm sure some of the stuff they took some creative license on. But the basic facts of what happened it's pretty much spot on, man, and it uh, it will make you look at that company in a completely different light. And those poor brothers, man, if they could see what McDonald's is today, I, <laughs> it is nothing Be rolling like over what in they their imagined, graves. Yeah. No, and um, and of course, this episode isn't to just shit all over McDonald's because 
that was my first job working at McDonald's. I had, it was, it was fine for me. But anyway, one of the things though, with the uh, McDonald's, as I understand it, that woman actually reached out to the, to them or her, her, one of her sons or something and said, look, we just want you to pay for the medical bills so that my mother, you know, cause she's racking up these hospital bills, having to have skin grafts and all this stuff. If you could just help us out. And they gave them the middle finger and they're like, okay, Roger that. Well, guess what we're going to do? We're going to find a lawyer and sue your ass, which in, in, um, in America, that's, I hate to say it, man, that's justice. You, you got to hit these people where, where it hurts them the most. Otherwise they're not going to change their behavior. These large corporations. And we saw echoes of the same thing in 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 the movie. Um, basically, McDonald's said, "Yeah, if you want to take on our legal team, if you if you think you uh, want to take on probably one of the richest companies in the world, uh, try your luck in court and pay for attorneys. We'll, we'll drag this thing out until you just can't afford it anymore." I'm sure that was the strategy that they had going in. And uh, usually, oftentimes, it's a successful one. But anyway, let's not go completely negative. Uh, let's uh, let's bring this back to something positive. I was telling Kai as we were watching that movie, I would have loved to have tasted a McDonald's burger from the 1950s. And then I thought about it a little more. And the next day, I said, you know what? I think I have tasted a McDonald's burger from the 1950s. And I think it's In-N-Out Burger. Are you a fan of In-N-Out? Love In N Out Burger. I love In N Out. I love their food. There's no, there's nothing frozen in that store as far as their meat and their potatoes and all that stuff goes. Their potatoes are cut on site. All their patties are hand rolled, I believe. Um, everything's done in that store. They take care of their people. They pay well above minimum wage. Uh, all of their employees are promoted from within. The average store manager makes $100,000 a year. Just an incredible company, man. And the reason they're not on the East Coast is because they will not build a store that is more than a day's drive from one of their distribution facilities. That's how they enforce their uh, quality standards and all that stuff. I, just a phenomenal company. And it, it really just kills me that McDonald's, hell, hell, we could pick on Walmart a little bit too, has the power to to just absolutely change lives, man. They employ so many people. They have such large valuations. And, you know, like Amazon. Amazon's also famous for treating its warehouse workers like shit to the point now that they're putting wrist and ankle monitors on all these people to see how much they're moving throughout the day. And Jeff Bezos is one of the richest men in the world, and he's asking for suggestions on how to spend his money on on, – philanthropic causes. And uh, I actually wrote him and said, why don't you pay your workers a fair wage and uh, give them insurance? I know that blows my mind. I'm like, how, what did they say in Wall Street, that movie Wall Street? How, how many yachts can you water ski behind, man? I mean, do you really need, uh, do you really need whatever amount of money? Can't you just spend 1 billion of that every year to pay your people a living wage? I mean, but anyway, we're getting way off the topic of coffee, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that's one thing that killed me in that movie. Um, when Ray Kroc's wife died, she donated $150 billion to the Salvation Army uh, and the rest of her fortune to uh, NPR, I think. But think think about that amount of money, man. Like, why, why the hell wouldn't you donate a third of that to your own damn employees that made you rich? I, I don't understand that. When I worked at McDonald's, I made three thirty five an hour now. That was in the mid '80s, but uh, like I said, not a bad company. That they, they were good to me, and it was a, gave me a good foundation to work your ass off for a little bit of money. And um, and I, it 
it's carried me well through today, but uh, I think these companies can be a little bit more responsible with what they're doing. Now, uh, that we started off talking about hot water and how we got into this. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, so, so anyway, uh, back to coffee. Sorry for that uh, to the audience. Back to coffee. Yeah, about 200 degrees max is about as hot as you want to go because, again, any hotter and you're going to start to release unfavorable tannins into your into your resulting cup of coffee. So 200 degrees, I don't have a thermometer that, you know, one of these infrared thermometers that measures the temperature of my water. I don't monitor that closely, but what I do is I'll bring it to a boil, I'll pull my kettle off, and I'll let it sit there for about a minute, minute and a half, and generally it's cooled down in that time to somewhere between 180 and 200 degrees, probably a little closer to the 200 degree side, but that's about as hot as you want to go. Um, let's talk about a couple of miscellaneous things that I couldn't put into a nice, neat category here. Um, how much coffee you should use. And this is generally accepted across the board. You'll see this on a Folgers can. You'll see it on a Maxwell House bag. You'll see it on a bag of the most expensive coffee. Well, I don't know about that. But you'll see it on bags of very high-end boutique coffees. You want about two level tablespoons per six-ounce cup of coffee. Don't skimp on that, man. There's nothing worse than a weak cup of coffee. Agreed. Um, use high-quality filters. Your low-quality filters that are bleached uh, typically leave some of those that chemical residue behind in the filter that will make your coffee taste bad. And you know, as as I read through some of the stuff, don't reheat your coffee because you know, as in the case of McDonald's, that might make it smell better, but that sure doesn't do anything for the flavor. Keep your equipment clean. As I read through this whole thing, I basically realized, Rich. That in the military, the coffee pots we had, excuse me, the coffee pots we had in our duty huts and our offices and our team rooms were pretty much the perfect storm of how to make a bad cup of coffee. Nothing was ever cleaned. We would go out and buy the 99 cent for 500 pack of filters, buy the cheapest coffee we could find. That that coffee pot would stay on all day long, and if it got turned off. You'd pour your cup and then go microwave it. Basically the perfect storm of a terrible cup of coffee. And I've encountered a lot of former Marines that are that do not drink coffee to this day. And they're like, man, I had some coffee one time and on duty and it was absolutely disgusting. And you know, that left that memory of this is what coffee tastes like. So why would I want to drink it? And I'm like, no, 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 my friend. Yeah. You had a bad cup of coffee. That's all. You know, let, let me introduce you to the world of good coffee. Yeah, I totally agree on that, man. There, there's a lot of bad coffee out there in the military. So let's talk just a little bit, just quickly, about coffee-making tools, about the different things you can use to make a cup of coffee. And probably the most common thing that most Americans use is just the old drip coffee pot. You put your filter in there, you put a couple scoops of coffee in it, you fill the back of it up with water, and you turn it on and you let it go. And uh, do you, well, I know you have one of these. Uh, anything to say on these? No, that's still my wife's favorite way to make a cup of coffee, and there's certainly nothing wrong with it. Um, I think it's probably how most Americans get their coffee to this day. Yeah, and I have nothing whatsoever against the old drip coffee pot, man, because you do it once, and you've got, I don't know, what is it, 10 or 12 cups of coffee, and if it's just you, man, if it's just me on a Saturday, um, I can I can drink on that pot of coffee and generally have it gone by noon. The thing I find is I make my coffee cup by cup, and that generally probably inhibits a little bit of my coffee consumption because it takes a little bit more effort to make every single cup. I basically got to do that same amount of effort for every single cup. So generally, I'm I'm a two cup guy these days because of that. Uh, what else? Well, a lot of people, uh, a lot of my friends are 
big fans of the France press. How about you? Uh, I don't particularly care for the French press. So what this is, it's a it's a carafe that you put your coffee into, you put your hot water into it, and then you put, I'm sure everybody's seen one of these, you put a lid on it that has a strainer on a rod, and you you let your coffee sit there for a while, you put that lid on, and you start pressing that rod down, which presses the coffee to the bottom of that press, and then you're left with the coffee on top and the grain, the coffee grounds compressed at the bottom, and you pour that into your coffee cup and you go about your day. And as a matter of fact, there's coffee cups that have a built-in French press in them. Here's what I don't like about these. You put your coffee in, you put your water in, then you have to let it sit there for like five minutes. And the longer that coffee sits in the hot water, again, you're back to leaching those unfavorable bitter tannins out of the beans. Uh, so I will use a, a French press, but it's not my preferred technique because of how long you have to let it sit there. And that's the other thing, you know, with me, I want a consistent cup of coffee. And there are so many different variables at play with the, the uh, a French press, like the amount of, you know, what did I get the grind right this morning? Did I let it sit too long or take it off? too soon uh did i let the water steep long enough or not so i found it completely inconsistent a lot of people rave about them i'm not a fan if you're a fan and you've got the best way to do a, a french press cup of coffee send it to rich at across i'd love to see it uh but t- to me it's just too unreliable brother I'm, I'm totally with you consistency is key consistency is one of the biggest things for me with a cup of coffee that I want above all else. And and I kind of agree on the French press thing. Uh, My preferred coffee apparatus is the AeroPress. And if you've never seen one of these, you would think it's similar to a French press. It's basically like a giant syringe. That's that's really all it is. Uh, You take the syringe portion, you dump your beans in there, you set this whole thing on top of your coffee cup. It's, I don't know, it's about six inches long and about two inches in diameter. And you fill that thing up with water and you take your little stirrer and you stir it vigorously, you pop that thing out and then you put the plunger in and you force that water through. And because of the high pressure that that generates of actually forcing the water through the coffee, you get a really strong, basically what you spit out there is a shot of espresso. You get a really strong, nice cup of coffee and you get almost no bitterness. Because of that pressure, you can use a lower temperature water, 180, 185 degrees, and you leave it in there almost no time. I've shown this to people, and they're like, holy crap, man, it's that fast. And I'm like, yep, it's that fast. You dump your coffee in, you dump your water in, you stir it, and you press it out, and that is it. And that makes a really, really consistent cup of coffee. I always add uh, water to fill my cup, which I I usually make a, a triple shot, add water and fill my cup, and I've basically got an Americano right there. Yeah, I've never tried that. I'll have to... Uh... Try to give that a, next time you come down. I'll have to give it a try. What what's the next one, man? Okay, and, and the other the other reason I like this is in conjunction with my um, uh, with my hand grinder. I don't need any electricity to make coffee. Basically, all I need is a way to get hot water. I have you know several ways to produce uh, <laughs> produce hot water. I I don't need to have electricity to run my grinder, to run my coffee pot, to run whatever. Uh, I can take this thing camping. I can make coffee in a hotel room. I can, like it travels very, very well. And I can always, as long as I have water, a way to heat that water and some coffee beans, I've always got a cup of coffee. And I'm going to go a little bit deeper into this. It's also a little bit why I got away from milk and sugar. I can't always get milk and sugar, especially in hotels, man. Hotels are notorious 
for having a little packet of creamer there. And even hotels that offer breakfast, if you go down and look at their milk, it's usually skim milk or 2% milk, and that just doesn't quite answer the mail for me for coffee. So just that lack of consistency is why I ended up going to black coffee. Well, and I normally will carry with me, like we you know, we went on vacation this past week and stayed in a little carriage house on the water, and I took my espresso maker, I put it in a box, and drove it down there with me because having a, that, that consistent cup of coffee is so important to me, uh, and and to me it, it's uh, I want that reliable thing. So as a matter of fact, well, we'll get there in just a second. I'm going to talk about the two things, or the two or three things that I recommend when it comes to coffee making methods and tools. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, jump right into it, man. I, one of the one of the things I have stumbled across in my journey to find the perfect espresso was this thing called the Chimera. Uh, and we'll have it in the show notes, but it's K-A-M-I-R-A, and it's a handmade stovetop Sicilian espresso maker. And it's an absolutely beautiful, elegant little design, and it makes the, if you love crema, it makes crema for days. It's an absolutely amazing little product. You can get it on Amazon for like 99 bucks, And uh, I just can't recommend this thing enough. I uh, really enjoy the coffee there. It pulls the oils out of the beans just better than anything I've ever experienced. So for the price point and for what it does, it, it's amazing little stovetop thing. And I will tell you, it works best with gas stoves. Uh, I have a glass stovetop, but I went out and bought a little a little gas unit that I could have here at the house just to make it even better. So I highly encourage that. The other one is nothing beats from my wife anyway that bun drip coffee maker for consistency for i mean it's professional grade we've had it for years and years and years very reliable very enjoyable and the final thing i would say man is my little nespresso machine phenomenal cup of coffee you can find some really high-end uh espresso machines you know a real close friend of mine has one that he bought in switzerland for over a thousand bucks and brought it back and it's a fully automatic espresso maker so the sky's the limit and if you want to spend a thousand bucks man you can get a great one but for the price point about 120 bucks then espresso you you can't beat it for a good uh consistent espresso that's awesome man uh i'm definitely interested in that uh chimera 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 yeah Uh, i'm definitely interested in that man yeah dude you're there's videos out there with the the inventor of this thing, you know, talks about the dozens of designs he went through before he finally settled on this one. And when you see it, it's like, man, okay, there's no wasted space. There's no wasted energy. It does everything just right. And uh, it's a beautiful little design. We'll have to put it in the show notes. So, Justin, do we have a book of the week? We sure do, brother. And this is a book that I just finished. It has absolutely nothing to do with coffee. And as I intimated earlier in this episode, I don't think I've ever read a book on coffee, but you can guarantee that I'm going to fix that. And you guys will hear about that coming up soon. So the book of the week this week is one that I just finished. And man, I have enjoyed this book absolutely immensely. It's called Don't Make Me Pull Over, An Informal History of the Family Road Trip. And basically, this book looks at a number of factors. It looks like it looks at how the interstate And the auto manufacturing industry and the fast food industry and the hotel industry and all these things kind of came together for this beautiful period in the 1970s 
and maybe a little bit into the 1980s that just became this perfect storm, so to speak, for the family road trip. Uh, holiday inns were springing up all over the place. McDonald's was springing up all over the place. Things like Stuckey's were springing up all over the place. People had these huge cars. Airline travel is very, very expensive and pro- cost prohibitive for families. But you could throw your whole damn family in a car, get from coast to coast in a couple of days, be have a McDonald's and a hotel, not at every exit, but at predictable intervals. And we don't really do that like we used to anymore, but in the 1970s, that's pretty much what every family did every summer is load the family up for a car trip because it was almost as, uh, you know, cost almost the same to bring your whole family as it did for you to go yourself. And it just opened up the entire country. And it is an absolutely fascinating book from the perspective of a gentleman that lived through this period and basically relates his experience as a kid. Uh, riding in the back window ledge of his dad's giant cars of the of the 1970s down the interstate from uh, he was from the upper Midwest uh, maybe Illinois driving you know down to Mississippi Georgia Florida because his dad was a big golfer but man absolutely fantastic book can't recommend it enough if you're interested in uh, how those things kind of shape the American landscape. That is cool. I'll have to check that out. And you mentioned Stuckey's, and I heard this. I don't know if it's mentioned in the book or not. This Maybe it's just an urban legend, but someone had told me that the guy who started Stuckey's, he started in Atlanta, had a couple of cups of coffee, got in his car, and headed north and on the interstate. And when he had to use the bathroom, he pulled over at that exit and said, I'm going to build a Stuckey's right here. And then he did the same, had some more coffee, got back in the car, and, and every single place that he's like, I've, <laughs> I have to use the bathroom, that's where he said this would be the perfect place for Stuckey's. Did you ever heard that? Yeah, uh, that story was actually relayed in the book as well as Stuckey's took a huge hit. Stuckey's didn't really keep up all that well with the time. They were one of the leading chains, and you hardly ever see one anymore because they almost completely went under. Now that's that's changed a little bit with the... I think maybe the grandson of the original guy owns it now, and he's he's doing a really good job of keeping it alive. But uh, also, another thing Stuckey's did was put billboards everywhere advertising their stores. And when all their stores went out of business, one thing they did not do is go and take all those billboards down. So you had a lot of people pulling up to uh, a Stuckey's with a chain on the door uh, with an empty gas station. And this was before the time when there were 10 gas stations at every exit and uh, that was an interesting little anecdote in the book as well. Hmm. Yeah, there's a there's a Stuckey's here uh, not far from my house with a like you said a I don't know if there's a literal chain on the door, but uh, there's all these signs Stuckey's at the Baxter exit, and when you get to the Baxter exit, there's one boarded up Stuckey's and nothing else. So yeah, I could imagine some pissed off people <laughs> pulling up there okay, to get so some that- gas. That continues even till today. Well, unfortunately, nowadays, you can hop on the interstate and go down to the very next exit, and there's probably four different gas stations and a McDonald's and everything else. But it's hard for us to remember that that wasn't always the case, especially if you get outside of the uh, basically the urban centers of the West Coast or if you get off the East Coast and into big sky country. Then there's places you can drive 100 miles and not see a gas station, and that's uh, – I'm I'm a big fan still to this day of the road trip, and that's one thing I love about the you know the big sky American West is there's still places you can go, and and there's not just every single convenience at every single exit anymore. 
No, there's not. If you haven't been in those places, man, get your ass in the car, take your family on a road trip, and you'll be surprised at what you encounter out there on the fringes of the American frontier. So anything else, Justin? If not, man, why don't you lead us out? All right, brother. Well, first and foremost, thank you to everyone for listening to Across the Peak. If you really want to help us out, the single best thing you can do is share this show with someone that needs this information. If you got a friend that likes to cook, turn them on to the cooking show, and hopefully they will stay for something else. If you got a buddy that likes to work on cars, show him the vehicle PMCS episode and let him get mad at all the things we didn't mention, but maybe he'll listen to something else. If you've got a friend that uh, likes a cup of coffee, Uh, Give her this episode and maybe she'll find something else that just really changes her life. Uh, So please share the show with someone that uh, that could use it. That's probably the single best thing you can do to, uh, to help us out. And until next week, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous. You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous.